What type of real estate will drive much of the economic growth across the nation's opportunity zones? Find out next as I'm joined by Rise of the Rest partner Clint Myers. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Today I'm on site at the Opportunity Zone Expo at the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas, and joining me here today is Clint Myers. Clint is a partner at Revolution, a Washington, D.C.-based investment firm that was founded by AOL co-founder Steve Case in 2005. You've likely heard of their Rise of the Rest tour, and they have a new real estate platform and an Opportunity Zone fund that will launch later this year. So Clint, thanks for coming on the show, and welcome. Thank you, Jimmy. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So can you Start by telling me a little bit about Revolution. What is it and what makes it different from most other investment firms? I think a lot of people have heard about the Rise of the Rest bus tour and what Steve Case is doing. I know he was featured on 60 Minutes episode, uh, I don't know, a couple months back. But, but tell, tell me a little bit more about Revolution and what you guys are doing over there. Yeah, Revolution is an investment firm started by Steve about 15 years ago. So he famously started AOL back in the mid-'80s. It was, for a while, the most valuable company in the, in the U.S. in the late-'90s. They had a famous merger uh, with Time Warner. And then after that, uh, Steve decided to spend his time uh, investing uh, on behalf of, of Revolution through a number of different investors. So originally, there were um, uh, a private equity fund that uh, invested in large uh, sectors. I think the, the original thesis of, of Revolution was that to make a big impact in the private investment world, you should invest in those sectors that really matter. So think about sectors like agriculture, and real estate and logistics, things that are make up a large percentage of GDP. So I think Steve saw that as a hole in the market, uh, especially on the tech side. So Revolution originally started there. A few years ago, Steve uh, created a new thesis. And I think, you know, he's, he's interesting. And in what he would say is that he's had a couple of big ideas in his life. The first was that people are going to get on the internet. And he was early but right but wrong for a long time, of course, uh, famously during the 80s. And his second is this idea of rise of the rest. And in the world of venture capital, 75% of, of the VC money goes to entrepreneurs in California, Massachusetts, and New York. And when you, when you sit back and think about that, you have to say, that doesn't seem right, and it doesn't seem like that's representative of where the talent or the imagination or the startup activity is. So what rise of the rest does is it intentionally invests seed stage capital outside of those three areas. Right, so Steve now, through this Rise of the Rest Fund, uh, which has been investing for a few years, is formerly run by J.D. Vance, has made about 120 investments uh, in early-stage companies. And these are in places that are in small towns in America, in larger cities, but they're really filling a hole in the market. And, and we have a belief that quite often the capital, the whole of capital, is what you need uh, to create opportunity in, in a, lot of these, a lot of these areas. And the market just isn't really that efficient in doing it, at least in the venture and the venture capital side. So the, the Rise of the Rest has been successful in doing these tours, helping build up ecosystems, shining a light on ecosystems in these cities that already exist, and helping get 
these areas to a to another level when as as we as we look forward in the future. I think that the data shows that really the job growth in the United States comes from startups, right? Large companies is kind of a net zero. They add people, they, they, they lose people. Same thing with medium-sized companies. You need startup activity to drive economic growth in this city, in this country, sorry. And if it doesn't happen uh, broadly across the U.S., then, then we're going to continue to have very unequal outcomes uh, across the U.S. And it seems like the mission of revolution overlaps a lot with opportunity zones, or at least the intent of the opportunity zones policy, which is to invest or incentivize investment in these overlooked areas of the country. Yeah, yeah. by chance it does. And, and when we first met with Steve uh, to, to broach the idea of, of starting a real estate platform within Revolution, he actually introduced my partner and I to the concept of, of opportunity zones. We, we weren't familiar. But you're right. The, the, the objective of the opportunity zone legislation, in my mind, is to use market mechanisms, pricing mechanisms, to bring capital to places where it would not otherwise go. And you're exactly right. That's exactly on top of what we're aiming to do. And so it's, it's very logical that we would use that legislation uh, in, in the way it's intended, I think, uh, to, to just sort of supercharge what our original mission is, which is bringing capital from other places and earn good returns in these areas where, where capital might not otherwise go. Right. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got to be at Revolution. You just joined last year, I believe. What is your role there? How did you get to, to your position where you are today? My, uh, my partner and I joined Revolution, you're right, la- at the end of uh, last year, the second half of last year. Both of us were at a real estate development company called Heinz before. And Heinz is a large global developer, uh, a great developer. I've been around since the 1950s. And while there, I, was, uh, I had a few different hats, but I was in charge of global strategy, which meant uh, devising new investment strategies, helping raise capital, helping raise new funds. And one of the things I found in that world is that from, from that seat, you meet a lot of investors, you meet a lot of global investors, and a lot of them have these same blinders on that, that we were talking about earlier, which is they want to invest in the U.S. in just a handful of cities. New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Boston. And then maybe if you're creative, you can talk them into Chicago and Houston. And we had this, these conversations over and over again. And I, I'm a data-oriented person, and, and I would attempt to go in and say, well, what about places like Pittsburgh right, or Raleigh? You've got great universities. You've got tons of smart people. Those fundamentally, we think, drive economic growth and drive rents and values, all the things you want as a real estate investor. And, and they would sort of nod their head and then say, okay, let's find something in New York where pricing is much higher, the competition is much higher. And that was a constant source of frustration in, in my previous institutional life because I thought they were overlooking things. And I think it's really, uh, it's these biases that we've learned about through economic research over the past 20 years is you, you um, there's comfort in doing what other people are doing. And when you're at a large investment firm, if you invest in New York and things don't go well, you're covered because you're in a global city. And so I think a lot of it was that. I think a lot of it was just the comfort of investing along with everybody else. But as we know, that doesn't lead to good economic returns. Uh, Instead, it just leads you to do what everybody else is doing. So when I saw what Steve was doing with Rise of my partner and I, who we shared a lot of these same views um, in our previous uh, world, we said, 
the rise of the rest, there's a, there's a great real estate analog to that. Both the thesis is similar, but also if you want to create economic growth in these smaller cities, then yes, you need capital. Yes, you need smart people. You also need real estate as a fundamental input to a city. Because we think about it as real estate is a canvas in the city, and all of the economic growth happens on top of that canvas. But in a lot of cities, the canvas doesn't have enough good real estate. And so if you think about it, if you and I were going to start a company and we were going to grow it in a city, one of the things we need is good office space. Assuming we're in a, in a sort of a knowledge-based uh, company, you need good office space to grow into. And that's, that exists in spades in New York and a lot of these places. You go to some of these smaller cities, it doesn't really exist. So there's a chicken and the egg thing. How are you going to have economic growth, really strong economic growth, startup activity, all these things we're talking about, if you don't have the fundamental real estate, the base of it, allowing for people to, to start companies and grow there? And so that was the, one of the arguments we made. And it's very logical that fits into the overall rise of the rest strategy, which is it's all about the ecosystem. Nobody can do this alone. And I think the ecosystem is even more important when you go to these smaller cities. You need to pull the different pieces together, the entrepreneurs, the venture capitalists, the government, the media, all of these parts. And real estate is just a logical fit of that. And so that's why we thought sitting within revolution as, a, as another vertical investment made all the sense in the world. And, and uh, it's proven to be that, that way. I think we've been received very well when we go into these cities and with the, the, our venture team. What are the different branches within Revolution? I know there's a, there's a few different departments there. There's the rise of the rest, and there's there's a growth or a, I think a VC uh, section also. Can you can you break those sure. down for me? I, I may have I may have uh, butchered those a little bit. You you were good. There's a private equity fund that invests in later stage companies. So they've made investments in companies like Convene, the the space operator, which is very relevant, of course, for what we're talking about. Um, some restaurant concepts such as Kava and Sweetgreen. So relatively well-established uh, companies. Then there's a venture capital fund, which is somewhat earlier stage. It's just made an investment in a firm called Mint House, uh, which is uh, also relevant. What Mint House does is they, they take space in apartment buildings and then run them like hospitality concepts, so competing directly with hotels. And so that's an, another interesting part of our real estate strategy is we've got these other prop tech companies in the portfolio. Right, that we can go work with through time. We can work with Convene. We can work with a mint house, you know, to the extent it, to the extent it makes sense. And so it's something that just a traditional standalone uh, real estate vertical doesn't have those. And so those are the two. And then there's the Rise of the Rest Fund, which is a $150 million fund. And then we are the fourth, the fourth vehicle, the fourth vertical in the firm. Good, good. And so, so I want to talk about OZ funds and OZ fund strategy for a minute here. So far, the majority of opportunities on funds that have been set up are focused on real estate investment and you know pretty much just multifamily real estate um, by and large, and there's a, there's a place for that certainly. But the opportunity zones program, the tax benefit is a capital gains tax benefit, and so I've always felt, and I've said this on a few other episodes, like the best use case for that is going to be business investment, where you can get a 10x or even a 100x return and not pay any capital gains on that at the exit, that's huge. Um, you know, seed and VC investors are gonna be the ones reaping the largest investment from this program. And I think that's kind of how revolution can kind of play in this field. Am I wrong in saying that? No, I think that's right. I think that 
if, if you step back to the original intent of the legislation, I think the original intent really was to drive new business creation in these areas because that's what you really have the biggest payoff for, right? The, the, the ideal is to have the new Facebook start in, in one of these areas because what we've found is that you, the, the best way to stimulate a, a startup area is to have one of those big exits. If you have one of those big unicorns and then you start having a lot of angel investment throughout, it just you know, creates this ecosystem on its own. So I think you're right. I think that if we look back in 10 years and you've had a number of, of multi-billion dollar companies started in opportunity zones, I think that's great. I think that's really uh, going to be a win for the, for the program. And so I was having a conversation earlier this morning with a with a startup that we're that we've been talking to, and they're reincorporating and they're reincorporating in an opportunity zone for exactly this reason, and it'll change their location decisions as it should. Like that's what this is designed to do, and uh, so you're right that this ability, the, the venture capital side is going to be potentially the more interesting side. I think it's early. This new guidance is helpful uh, in clarification as to is it a revenue test or is it a headcount test. And I think we were pretty happy with what we saw, that it's a headcount test. I think, that's, I think that makes sense. And, I, and you're starting to see some venture funds that are, that are targeting this. Um, we, we're not specifically. I think as time goes on, then it'll be a part. I think a lot of the startups are kind of going to come to it on their own and recognize that it helps them, helps them draw more capital, and it helps their outcomes. But, but I, I do totally agree. So the real estate... Real estate, in many ways, is pretty boring. Real estate, the returns are going to be between, you know, maybe it's 8% or maybe it's 12% over this period, but there's not a huge amount of variability. And real estate, for the opportunity zones, is a little bit of a stay-rich strategy as opposed to a get-rich strategy. The venture world is going to be, that's where you have those huge outcomes. So I do think, just as a, as a citizen, what I really do hope is that the, the next... I, wave of IPOs that happens um, when we look back is much more geographically dispersed than the current one we're in right now, right? We're in this little mini IPO wave. And if you look at all the companies, uh, for the most part, they are San Francisco, New York. They look at Uber and look at WeWork and all these companies. And that's been the nature of this, of this tech cycle. And that's benefited the real estate in those areas. So our fundamental belief, and Steve wrote about this in a book called The Third Wave, is that the way technology is evolving is going to be more geographically dispersed, that the startups that are going to start in this next wave of the Internet need to be not just apps on your phone, but actual companies that solve big problems, quite often in conjunction with already existing companies in big industries. Right? So if you're going to start a healthcare company, don't start it in San Francisco. Uh, instead, start it in Nashville or start it in Baltimore, where you've got these institutions that are already there, partner with with those healthcare systems. And we think that is just going to be the next wave. And so we want to position ourselves to do that. We think opportunity zones just add to that, to the, to the incentive to start those companies there. Absolutely. I completely agree. And you said real estate was boring by and large, but, yeah. but you're a real estate guy. So I want, I want to hear a little bit more about you and, and, and if you could talk about real estate's role at Revolution and, and talk a little bit about the opportunity zone fund that, you're looking to launch later this year, and how how real estate plays into developing an entrepreneurial ecosystem 
within the emerging markets that you're targeting, not just Silicon Valley and New York, but, but secondary and tertiary markets all over the country. How, what is real estate's role there? And and how are you getting involved in that? Yeah, well, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of, if we go to these conferences, we were both at conferences the past couple of days, what I see most people trying to do is build multifamily in opportunity zones. And I think that's because it's the easiest thing to do. That's, and it's easy for people to understand. You go, oh, I, everybody lives somewhere. I can understand that. It's easy to finance with Fannie and Freddie. And it's the most liquid asset class. So because of that, we don't find that quite as compelling. And we think... It's actually better to do the things that are a bit harder, and we think those are more valuable. Granted, residential has its role uh, in this in the strategy, but what we believe is that within a city, the um, really the driver from a real estate standpoint is office. So we're generally in a knowledge-based economy, and in the cities we're targeting uh, are generally uh, service uh, and knowledge work is being done. And because of that, the most important real estate then is the office building because that's where the wealth in these cities is being created. So multifamily and retail and hospitality, all these things are nice, but the money that's being spent there is really a derivative of the money that's created in the office buildings. So if you don't have enough good quality office space, the rest of it kind of doesn't matter. And so those folks that are starting with the retail, uh, and I heard this stated earlier today, they said they're investing in retail because it creates the most jobs. And I think that's a short-sighted way to think about it. I think if you really take a long-term view and you want to help cities grow, then you, you, create, you, you, have, you build more high-quality office that has some creative office space, probably some incubator space, some co-working space, a whole mix of different options. And within real estate, the, the most interesting thing I think that's happening now is the change in office, the change in how people work. Because for decades... Tenants in office buildings weren't given options. They were given the option of a seven-year lease or a 10-year lease. That's it. And that's kind of crazy if you think about it because everywhere else, the consumer rules, right? And everything else has changed because of the consumer. But in office, that's how it's been. And that's been a really high barrier to entry for a lot of startup individuals who just want to test out, will this business even be successful? I don't want to sign a seven-year lease. Of course. And who knows? I mean, the future is so uncertain. If you're a company, how do you know how much space you're going to want in seven years, Right. You, recessions happen, you shrink, you grow, and it's just the nature of that asset class that they were, just weren't given those options. But what's happened is the property sectors are starting to meld together a bit, and, and, and office is becoming a little bit more like hospitality in many ways, where there's a lot more services offered in the buildings because tenants are demanding more services like they didn't before, and so it, it's starting to have a little bit more of that concierge feel. And just like hospitality, the, the, there's a lot more flexibility on the lease rates. And that's what, you know, WeWork is the most famous example, but there's a lot of other co-worker, co-working firms out there that are, that are providing some of these services. So we think that's a, a big trend that's good. We think this is a good thing because the more flexibility you offer to these, to these companies, I think the better for them. So I think if you look at the data, the, the amount of co-working um, as a percentage of overall office space is way higher in New York and San Francisco than it is in Pittsburgh and these other places. It's actually hard to find good co-working space and creative space in, in a lot of these smaller cities. I was in Pittsburgh and I visited one of the more well-known co-working spaces. It was in a strip mall. I couldn't find it. It was so tucked away in a, stri in a strip mall. Like, and so that's a, that's, that, that hurts a city like Pittsburgh's ability to attract 
company is Integrow. And so if you're going to start a company in Carnegie Mellon and you're going to grow out of Carnegie Mellon, you don't really have good space to grow into. And so again, what do those people do? A lot of times they leave, right? They go to New York, right? New York. They go to New York because the ecosystem is better there. But the the ecosystem, including real estate, becomes um, better through time. More of those people at the margin are going to stay. And I think that's really the goal is that just like it's easier for a company to keep a client than to get a new client, it should be cheaper for cities to keep those people than to, than to attract new people into them. And so I think economic development um, broadly uh, is kind of changing. And I think there's been bad, I think Amazon was an example. I think the Foxconn deal in Madison was an example of these things where cities took the big approach as opposed to the small approach. And I think they're going to be better off if you say, especially these areas that have really good universities, how do we keep those people? How do we keep people in Madison and Ann Arbor so they don't move to Chicago? And, uh, and I think that's sort of our bet is one of the things we can help with that is create the space for them to live. And I think that's a big part of the draw to the places like New York is just a better amenity base, housing base, and just a more fun, uh, livable environment. And I think a lot of these smaller cities are, 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 are catching up to New York. They'll never get all the way to New York, but they're getting better. And what types of properties specifically are you and, and is the Revolution Opportunity Fund targeting? Is it, is it just co-working space and, and uh, incubators and accelerator type space? Or, or is, there, no, is there mixed use or anything else going on with, your, with, your, with, the, with the deals that you're trying to land? Everything we're working on has at least some office piece of it. I think a mix of uses we found tenants prefer, right? And, and it's interesting. When you have the mix of uses, you can, it's economically better, too, because you're getting more density on the space. You're able to share the amenities. If you, if you have multifamily and an office, then you can put some amenities that they both can share. So it actually lowers your cost as a, as a developer. And the tenants on both sides appreciate that. So, and we think that's the way of the world. So the, generally, most things we're working on are that, are going to be some sort of mix of uses, but with high-quality office space that doesn't often exist uh, in a lot of these cities. And, and I would say in the parts of the city where we think entrepreneurs are going to continue to want to congregate. So we think density really matters. And especially in these smaller cities, you're going to be better off as opposed to having five different parts of the city where the entrepreneurs are to have just one or two that they are. And then and you've got the service providers nearby, the venture capitalists nearby. Uh, we think that's a better outcome. And so generally, most of the areas are in the city centers or in the emerging neighborhoods. And like you alluded to earlier, the opportunity zones have been fairly favorable in most of the cities we're targeting, where their are situations we would have been doing anyhow. They happen to be in opportunity zones, and, uh, and that works out to our benefit. But we're certainly not you know, chasing opportunity zones. We want the strategy to lead everything we do, and the strategy being you know, creating space for economic growth to, to flourish. Of course. Yeah, and, but there is a lot of overlap with the yep. Opportunity Zones program and, and Revolution's mission. What, uh, since, since you joined Revolution almost a year ago now, what's been your biggest challenge there so far? Well, I think that Opportunity Zones themselves, when we originally conceived of, of starting a platform, Opportunity Zones were out there, but they were a pretty small part of what we were thinking about. Right? We were thinking about a fairly traditional real estate platform, blending venture and real estate. That was the angle. Um, and, and certainly the cities we were targeting was different. Opportunity zones have been such a, a huge um, item in the news 
And given the overlap with our strategy, they've kind of been the focus. And that has been good. And it's also slowed us down a bit because you're beholden to the IRS. You're beholden to Treasury because you're waiting for those regs to come out. And now we've got, we've got 250 table. pages of regs to, exactly. to read through. So, you know, where we would have wanted to work at a certain speed in general, you're, you kind of have to alter your speed based upon the government. And so that's been a bit of a frustration. And, but I think, I think the Opportunity Zone legislation is a net positive. It's just uh, it's, it's sort of slowed us down. Uh, to maybe where we would have been if we had a traditional uh, vehicle. Sure, but uh, the payoff on the back end, you're hoping, is, makes yeah. it all worthwhile, right? Yeah, we hope so. We hope so. You know, it'll be interesting to see the outcome of Opportunity Zones. The, we were just watching a panel where one of the panelists was pretty negative on, on the, uh, stating the view that he thinks a lot of bad projects are going to get done, at least the projects that they've seen. That might be true, but one of the more maybe controversial takes I would have on Opportunity Zones is that I think if you look historically, there have been situations where equity capital has been misinvested through different cycles. Quite often you have bubbles, right? And in the last bubble of the tech boom in the late 90s, I would argue was actually a positive outcome. And the reason I think it was a positive outcome is because the, the bubble sends a signal to the market to create more supply, like the high prices do. And when that happened, you had a lot of uh, new supply in that situation being like fiber optic cable laid. There was a company called Global Crossing that the, the stock was crazy. And so they used that, that money. They kept going to the market, raising more money and laying fiber optic cable across the Atlantic Ocean. Well, that was terrible for those investors in Global Crossing, but it was great for us now because they created all that capacity. So part of me thinks that opportunity zones might lead to some um, bad investments made, which would probably mean too much real estate being built, and I think that would be the mistake in, in some areas you get overbuilt. As long, as long as you're not an investor in that, I think it's a positive. I think if you have overcapacity of real estate in a lot of these areas, it keeps the rents low. And so I think that could actually be a good thing. I think uh, Jane Jacobs said long ago that interesting ideas require cheap real estate. In a lot of these places, that's kind of what you want is these areas where you want uh, pockets of success, but you also want pockets of, of cheap real estate for people to do their work and to live in and need these things to change. So I was actually listening to him say that and kind of going, in some, in some regards, I kind of hope that's right. I, ho I hope some areas do get overbuilt uh, because I think that's good for people that need, need cheap real estate. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a kind of perverse way of thinking about things. But, but you know, I, I, I can see what you're saying. You know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, if we realize, oh, some of these areas have been overbuilt, well, at least now these cities have some capacity to, to grow into those, those, uh, those buildings. Yeah, the last period of overbuilding, and this is what some people point to, is you had the, the 86 uh, tax law change, and there was a massive overbuilding in real estate in the early 90s. And that changed the lens of real estate developers for a long time in a negative way because then what you had was you had massive overbuilding of office uh, for a lot of cities which led to high vacancy rates and rents fell and that comes back to that dynamic that i was just talking about which in many ways was good because it allows companies to, to take space cheaper but it also scared developers away and led to less development in the future so it, it could alter cycles it'll be interesting to see how it plays out but we've seen some of that before i would say the an interesting difference with opportunity zones compared to other pieces of legislation as it, is that it's really is market based like they're really laying out the principles and saying given that now let's let the market work 
And for that reason, I think it's going to work far better than other pieces of legislation that have been enacted to try to solve some of these same problems. Yeah, letting the private market, letting free market capitalism try to determine where this capital should go. I, I, I agree with you. That's one, of the, that's one of the things that drew me to the program. I like that, um, that philosophy behind it. And we spoke a little bit about the regulatory guidance that came out in April. I wanted to get a sense from you. Did it answer the questions that you had personally about the Opportunity Zones statute, or did it, did it answer questions that uh, Revolution had? Did it, did it kind of get you off the sidelines here in the last few weeks, or how are, how are you proceeding since those, since those guidelines came out? Yeah, I think the main, I'd say the main question we had, there were a few technical issues that it did help clarify. I think the clarification on investing in companies was the big one. And I think for generally the projects we've been spending time on aren't that controversial, meaning they're ground-up developments, they're clearly in opportunity zones. And so we felt like everything we were working on was fine, was going to work. I, th I think the impact it had was on the investor side. And I think a lot of, a lot of investors, maybe through their service providers, were kind of a little bit skittish and said, we know there's more guidance coming, we've heard it's not prudent for us to move until that comes, even if realistically they, they felt comfortable too. So I think for us, that's been, that's been the bigger piece is getting comfort with our partners that this is pretty much what it is now. And, uh, and like I said, I think on the company formation, I think that was, that was good, that was good guidance, but it didn't really impact any of the immediate projects we were working on. And one final question for you before we go. I asked this to a lot of my, uh my guests that come on the podcast, what's the most memorable investment that you've made in your life? Is there anything in particular that stands out over the course of your career? Well, I've been, I'm a, I'm a fan of the, of the um, guidance to invest in yourself, invest in yourself wherever possible. And, you know, I think when we, when we took the leap um, to start this platform, that's kind of betting on yourself and investing in, in, in something into the great unknown. And leaving a great, a great firm like we did, a lot of people thought we were crazy to do it. And the hope, I guess, maybe I'll, I'll, this will be a future me talking. My hope is that this investment we're making right now is going to be the best investment we make. I love that answer. The current project you're working on, right? That should always be the best one anyway, I think. Right. Uh, Clint, thanks for joining me today. Could, can you tell our listeners before we go where they can go to learn more about you and Revolution and Rise of the Rest? Absolutely. Uh, the, the website is revolution.com. And for Rise of the Rest, a quick Google will take you to a number of stories, especially on our last tour in Florida. There's some great stuff that's been written about that. Good. Well, uh, for our listeners out there, I'm going to have show notes for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast and i'll have links to all of the resources that clint and i discussed on today's show i'll have links to revolution and rise of the rest and maybe i'll include a couple of good articles on there as well and uh, again that url is opportunitydb.com slash podcast clint thanks for joining me today this has been great thank you thank you that's it for our show today a huge thank you to you our listener if you liked this episode please rate and review us on itunes the Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. 
You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 